You are tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Cal Fire, reminding listeners to plan, prepare, and stay aware before wildfire strikes their community. Having an evacuation plan for home and work, practicing evacuating, and having an emergency supply kit ready is vital. Learn more at readyforwildfire.org. Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 7th, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today in two parts. In our second segment, we speak with Senior Counsel of the Constitution Project at POGO, Jake LaPeruque, about his study, Injustice, Tracking Bill Barr's Misconduct as Attorney General. But first, we speak with the senior senator from Montana, John Tester. In addition to being the only working farmer in the U.S. Senate, and an organic farmer at that, he has now written a memoir, Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America, just published by Echo Press. John Tester entered the U.S. Senate in 2006 and was re-elected for a third term in 2018 in spite of having been the recipient of Donald Trump's ire for having announced the unsuitability of his nominee for Director of Veterans Affairs, his personal physician, Dr. Ronald Jackson, because more than two dozen whistleblowers had reported serious, credible problems with Dr. Jackson's nomination. After Jackson withdrew his name, Trump flew to Montana four times to campaign against Senator Tester. Donald Trump Jr. came four other times, and Vice President Pence also came, each determined to defeat John Tester. However, Notwithstanding the fact that Trump had won the state of Montana in 2016 by about 20 points, not only did Senator Tester get re-elected in 2018, but by a larger percentage of the vote than in any of his previous elections. In these polarized times when power trumps propriety, when those who serve are seen as suckers and losers, when science and good sense are subsumed in phantasmagorical conspiracies, there are those few who remain true to their roots, who not only believe in democracy, but struggle to maintain it against ever-increasing odds. Such a one is Senator Tester. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Senator John Tester. Your book, Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America, has just been published by Echo Books. It's a memoir and chronicles people and events in your life that have helped shape your character and the federal legislator that you have become. Among the things one learns from reading it is the role of women in your life. Let's begin with who they are and how they have influenced you, beginning with your maternal grandmother, Christine Anderson Pearson, her daughter, your mother, Helen Pearson Tester, and your wife, Sharla Bitts Tester. Uh, of the homesteader era, she came and homesteaded with my grandfather uh, where we live today, west of Big Sandy. She was a very, very, what I, I, would, I would call a strong-willed. 
she was to grandpa what, what my wife is to me and what my mother was to her, my dad. And that is, she was the rock that he leaned on. She was the person that allowed him to be successful. And it showed. My grandpa passed away in 1962, I believe it was. And I will tell you that, you know, I was very young. I remember grandpa, but I certainly wasn't able to have conversations with him. My grandmother lived until I was 16. And somebody that set an incredible example to me on why you should pay attention to the world around you and what is going on and get involved in that world. My mother was very similar to my grandmother. She was a very, very strong woman and raised three boys and got us all through college. And, and I might add that my, my grandmother had four children, a boy and three girls. The boy did not go to college, but the three girls did, and they all graduated. Education was always a big thing in her life. Education was a massive thing in my mother's life. She always called it the great equalizer. And she said, you know, there's two things in this world that has made this country great. One is family farm agriculture and the other is public education. And that's one of the reasons I went to school and became a, a public education teacher in music. But my mother also was connected to the land in a way that that not many people are these days and would could smell and taste the soil and really determine a lot of things from that, which is really basic to farming, by the way. You can tell soil health from the smell and the taste, and people think, well, that's kind of crazy, you know, how, how do you do that? But the truth is, is that healthy soil has a different smell and it has a different taste, and, and you have to have healthy soil if you're going to raise healthy food. My wife, you know, I got lucky, man. I picked right, um, and, and we went out together for about, uh, I think 10 months from the time I took her on the first date to the time we had our wedding day. Uh, she's she's just a marvelous woman. She comes from the same area I do. Her her grandparents and parents have the same kind of background that, that mine do as homesteaders and, and folks who lived in that region in north central Montana. But Charlotte's somebody who's just been the foundation of our family. She's been, been somebody that uh, keeps me on the straight and narrow and, and, and keeps me, uh, you know, plumb and square and level. <laughs> and I'll just tell you that. I mean, any time that, that I come home and, and complain, if, if, if it's something that uh, deserves uh, that kind of recognition, she'll, she'll listen and, and respond. But oftentimes, you know, people complain just because they got a bad attitude and she'll straighten you out and you start doing that. And uh, she is truly the person who has kept me grounded. Uh, you know, we've been married for 43 years now. I was young when I got married. She was younger. Uh, we were 21 and 19. But quite frankly, it's worked. And, uh, and like I said, I got lucky. That's all I got to tell you. Well, you've got to share your first encounter with our listeners. Now, you had been eyeing her for a while, but it wasn't until a fateful softball game where she was the pitcher and you were the batter. Uh, what happened then? Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I'd seen her in Big Sandy. Her dad was in the banking industry and took over their family farm in 1975, and that was west of Box Elder. And for those of you that know North Central Montana, Box Elder, Big Sandy, about 10 miles apart. So, there, it's the same area. So I had, and they went to school in Big Sandy. I had graduated from high school. She was a senior in high school, and I, I saw her at a football game. I thought, man, oh man, she's really uh, pretty sharp. And uh, and and so I always wanted to visit with her. I wasn't exactly the most outgoing guy when it came to girls, anyway. And at any rate, uh, fate happened that we ended up 
uh, her folks went to the same church my folks did too did and so I, I'd see her in church and I went to a youth event a barbecue and for the church and uh, hoping that she would be there and by golly she was and and got a chance to to interact with her a little bit and then uh, we decided to go play a game of softball out in the middle of a cow pasture which is what you do and uh and she was pitching and I was batting and uh and uh, I I told her that uh, that I was going to hit a home run and she told me she was going to strike me out and I, you know I don't know she struck me out. What can I say? Uh, uh, maybe it was a divine intervention. I don't know. But uh, I've never lived that down. But it broke the ice and it allowed me to harass her a little bit as she harassed the heck out of me. And, and it was the start of a good good relationship. Well, that's one of many charming stories in your book, Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America. And also throughout the book, you talk about various ways you've struck out, but that you've learned from it and you've been accountable. So you married Sharla in 1977. And then in 1978, you two took over the family farm. And as you mentioned, you were 21, Charlotte was 19. Now the farm has grown to 1,800 acres and there's just one county width between your farm in Shoto County and the Canadian border. You farm organically without irrigation. You served on your local agricultural stabilization and conservation service committee. That's now known as the Farm Service Agency. You were elected to the Organic Crop Improvement Association, and you served on its executive committee while also serving on its international board of directors. Now, that sets standards for 37 countries. You have continued to farm without hired help other than Sharla, while also working as Montana's senator, and you have resisted the get big or get out dicta of decades of government pronouncements and policies. So would you please talk about your approach to agriculture and how your experiences as a farmer inform your efforts now in the U.S. Senate? Boy, Joy, that was uh, I'm, I'm a, that was an incredible introduction. I'll tell you that. That's the first time that's ever I've ever heard that. That's uh, amazing. Well, I'm just I'm just quoting what you wrote. <laughs> I, I I I know, but you put it all in one sentence, which is uh, really amazing. And I, I will tell you what what my uh, how my approach to agriculture is, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Soil is is really the most important thing there is on a farm, and you've got to take care of it. And look, I've had my share of disasters. I know what happens when wind erosion happens. I know what happens when you when you you may have too many weeds or or poor yield or whatever it might be. But but ultimately, it's the soil. And if you build the soil, you can you can raise good food. So it's all it's for me it's about making sure that you build the soil, that you have a rotation that, that works, that helps you control pests and weed cycles, and that you can be that you can be financially sustainable on that farm. Because if you go broke, it doesn't do you any good. So those are really the tenets of agriculture. In the bigger picture, I can tell you that you know, we converted to organics in the 80s for a number of reasons. I didn't get along well with the chemicals, and neither did Sharla. And and quite frankly, egg consolidation had been happening at, at, at both the, where you sell your products and the input level. It's gotten much worse in the last 40 years. 
but I was, I was tired of not having any options where I, I hauled my grain to town and, and they would tell you what's wrong with it. They would dock you for everything under the sun and cut the price on everything under the sun. And I just didn't get any sort of appreciation that I was doing anything but raising a commodity. I wasn't raising food. I was raising a commodity that they could set the price on the Chicago Board of Trade and I could take it or leave it. There was not any capitalistic principles in the marketplace because it was so heavily consolidated. So because of all those reasons, I converted to organic. And I'm going to tell you a quick story, and and I don't even remember if I put this in the book or not, but the very first field that I harvested was Durham. I'd never raised Durham before on the farm. It had always been winter wheat, spring wheat, and barley. But I planted lentils and peas and, and Durham. And I hauled the outside edge of the strip. You have to harvest separately because of potential spray drift or fertilizer leaching. And I hauled that to the conventional market in town. And it was, it was, you know, it was about four acres. So it was nearly, you know, 150 to 200 bushel of wheat. And, and I, uh, I took it in there and, and quite frankly, as they did usually, they told me what was wrong with it. And, and they docked this and that. And I, and I, you know, I walked out and I got my pickup with the check for not a lot of money, but it wasn't a lot of wheat, but I didn't really feel good about it because geez, you know, I mean, they, they kind of told you everything that you were doing wasn't working. And, and then the rest of it went to a place in Michigan in the organic market stuff inside that border strip. And I happened to go to a convention because nobody else wanted to go to it. And that's why I got elected to those boards you talked about, uh, International Certification Board and, and Executive Board. And I went to that and I saw the lady that contracted the Durham from me. And I had just shipped the Durham off to Michigan uh, a couple weeks earlier. So they had gotten it, they had tested it, and they were in the process of making noodles out of it. And she came up to me and she said something that I'd never heard in my life as a farmer. She looked at me and she said, we got your Durham and it's the best Durham we've ever gotten. And I went, holy mackerel. I finally found somebody that actually appreciates what we've done. They didn't tell me what was wrong with it. They didn't dock me for any, every little knickknack that was down the pipe. She came up to me and told me it was the best Durham they'd ever got. From that moment forward, I had always had in my mind when we made the conversion to organic so that I could go back if I had to. But that from that moment on, I said, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at in my head, and this is what I'm going to do forever. I'm going to connect up, and I'm going to connect this farm up with the best processors we have, and I'm connect up with the consumers, and, and we're going we're gonna to do this thing organically. And I converted the whole damn farm in pretty short order. But the bottom line is, is that I don't care what job you're doing. I don't care if you're a school teacher. I don't care if you're in a factory making widgets. I don't care if you own a business. If you don't get positive reinforcement for the work that you do, that work isn't any fun. And agriculture wasn't any fun for me until 1987. And then it became fun because there was competition in the marketplace. People appreciated what you were doing. And, and, and I just love it. And I still love it to this day, by the way. I only do business with, with a couple of three or four different buyers, but I've got, I've built relationships up with those folks. They appreciate what I do uh, and, and I appreciate what they do. And, and that's where, that's where we're at in agriculture. 
And uh, you are the lone farmer in the U.S. Senate. Now, things were already difficult for people in the agricultural sector with Trump's trade war and particularly the tariff issues. But now with the COVID uh, situation, you have had to really get even more active than you already were. And you were already very active because we'll explain to our listeners what the situation is now, both from the perspective of the tariffs and the issues around COVID. Yeah, so the issues around the tariffs are, and anybody in production agriculture understands this, if we don't have foreign markets, then we are really in tough shape. We have to have foreign markets, especially in Montana. We do happen to raise the best grains and the best beef and best pulses in the world, and that's not brag, that's fact. But but the bottom line is, if you don't have those foreign markets to be able to ship those products to, the, the wheat and the, and, the, and the beef and the pork and the grains, and, and the pulses, then you don't have much market. And, and it becomes very, very, very consolidated and the prices are driven down. That's exactly what's happened with the trade wars. And I know the president talks about, well, we've signed this China agreement and we've signed that agreement. But if you look at those agreements, they're not being enacted. They're not very good agreements. And quite frankly, we've lost market share because of these trade wars that are out there. And by the way, on the tariff side of things, it's increased our input costs because we still have to do things like buy grain bins and cattle guards and all those kind of things. So the tariffs on aluminum steel also have negative impacts. And and I'm here to tell you that right now, farmers would, and this has been this way forever, and I hope it stays this way, farmers would rather get their, their, their check from the grain elevator or the marketplace, not from the federal government. And we've had to infuse billions and billions and billions of dollars into farm agricultural units. And it's never distributed appropriately, by the way. There's always people that take advantage of it and get more money than they should. There's always people that deserve more than they get. So it isn't a true market. It's, it's quite frankly, the government uh, writing checks to farmers because uh, this isn't drought. This isn't bugs. This isn't disease. This is a man-made disaster. And the disaster was was the negotiations and the trade wars that have gone on that have sealed off many of our markets and given them to places like Argentina and Australia. So the bottom line is, is we've got prices that are extraordinarily low at at the farm gate. And by the way, if you take a look at the cattle industry, because consolidation there, extraordinarily high at the marketplace in in the grocery store. The guy in in the middle is making all the money the grocer's going broke and the farmer's going broke on each end. It's just not right. It kind of sounds like the situation a century and more ago, Sinclair Lewis was writing about. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, why, that's why what Teddy Roosevelt did was so very, very important, the trust buster, because he, he made it so capitalism could work. Capitalism doesn't work in a consolidated market. It does if you have competition. And if there's a monopoly, it certainly doesn't work. And so you're right. We're, we're in many respects, we're where we were over 100 years ago. And we've got to do something about it. And by the way, there are laws on the books, like the Packers and Stockyards Act, that we need to enforce. And there are other bills. I've got several, in fact, that will help get more dollars down to the farm gate. But the bottom line is I don't have the votes here to get those done in Washington, D.C. 
which is a whole other debate we can talk about as far as the impact of money on elections and and government. So we've got um, uh, we've got a situation in Santa Farm Agriculture where it has shown this this COVID crisis has shown that our food chain is is not very strong and can be broken. If you take a look at the packing plant that went down in South Dakota, that put a lot of producers uh, on the rail that had that had pork, and it increased costs. If you take a look at the beef packing, packing plant that burned up a couple of years ago, that increased costs for consumers and lowered prices for, for producers. So uh, if, if anything, we've got to do some things. If COVID has shown us anything, we've got to do some things to insert more competition in the marketplace and, and break up these doggone monopolies that aren't doing the country any good, certainly aren't helping with food security. But like I said, once again, there's farm groups out there that are controlled by those packers that will fight you tooth and nail because uh, they've been told what to do, and that's what they do. It's very unfortunate, and it's not in the best interest of, of the ranches or, or the folks in on the farm. So that that's kind of what COVID has shown us is that our food chain is broken, and and we need to, we need to make some adjustments, and hopefully, Congress will make those adjustments. A lot of these laws were put on the books 100 years ago, and we need to pay attention to why they were put on the books because I think the, the same problems uh, apply today. We're speaking with U.S. Senator from Montana, John Tester. His book, Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America, has just been published by Echo Press. You do a wonderful job, Senator, in talking about Montana's particular history of resisting corporate control of elections and uh, then revisiting Citizens United case, etc. But what it really comes down to is minority ruling majorities. And we now are at what some are considering another constitutional crisis with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the unseemly rapidity with which President Trump is trying to get her replacement onto the Supreme Court. I would appreciate whatever comments you have on that, however briefly. But then I want to go back to the idea of minorities ruling majorities, and particularly the role of the Electoral College. But first, any remarks you have about the current situation with the Supreme Court? If you go back four years ago, we we had Justice Scalia pass. And when President Obama put forth a candidate, Mitch McConnell said, we're not going to, we're not going to consider that candidate. We're not even going to interview that candidate. We're not going to do anything uh, because, quite frankly, it's an election year and the voters need to speak. I did not like that decision. I thought it was silly. I thought we should have taken up Merrick Garland. I thought we should have given him a hearing. And I thought we should have voted on him and let the vote say what it does. But nonetheless, Mitch McConnell, who was the leader of the Senate then, made this made this rule set this precedent that happened probably to my recollection seven or eight months before the election maybe even 10 months before the election now we have a situation where we're uh, where ruth bader ginsburg passes away last friday uh we're about 47 48 days away from the election and the same person mitch mcconnell says well what happened in 2016, 
we're not going to follow that precedent. We're going to go back to the precedent that was there before 2016. In fact, we're even we're even going to speed this one through because in normal cases, this close to the election, we wouldn't do it because we wouldn't have the time to get it done. Because it usually takes a couple months to get a justice there. I think Ginsburg took 50 days to get her confirmed. But nonetheless, Mitch has said, no, the rules that I said in 2016, they don't apply. We got a different set of rules. So what's different? Well, it was a Democratic president in 2016. It's a Republican president today. And I'm going to tell you, if you if you want to put this country on its ear, start having different sets of rules for different people. You know, start having a different set of rules for, uh, for, for rich people versus poor people, which, by the way, some would argue they're there. But when you do it this brashly, when you do it this intentionally, and you look the people in the eye and you say, I don't give a damn what the last president was. I'm doing it this way, and we're going to ram this new Supreme Court justice right down your throat. I'm going to tell you, I take offense to that. I think that's very poor leadership. I think long-term, you're doing far more damage to this country than you're, than you're helping the, the, the small group of people that you're trying to appease by putting in a Supreme Court justice without the proper vetting. And I got to tell you, it just... It, it, I've, and I've told reporters this back here. This is going to change the way business is done in the United States Senate. You have to have trust if you're going to be able to do business with people. If you don't trust them, you can't do business. That's true in business. That's true in a marriage if you don't have trust. And it's true in government. And I, I think that what Mitch McConnell is doing here is a massive, massive mistake and puts this country at risk. There are some who are speculating about changing the numbers of justices on the court. Uh, have you given any thought to that, or what are your what are your thoughts on that? I really haven't given any thought to it, Joy. I think that what, what we really need to focus right now is trying to get four Republican senators to understand that fairness is something that's a basic value of this country, and when you do things that's just blatantly unfair— it's bad for the country. And then I think we also need to think about what impacts this justice is going to have on things like health care, on things like voters' rights, on things, uh, on things like dark money and campaigns, on things like our public lands. Because quite frankly, it, it could have major impacts on all those things and a whole bunch more things. And so I, what, where I would like to focus on is the work we have ahead of us today. And that is talking about the impacts that this new Supreme Court justice would have on our everyday lives, which would be incredibly significant. We've got an election coming up. We'll see what happens in the election. But after that election, then we're going to have a lame duck, and, and we'll be talking about a number of things, including a package to help small businesses with COVID if we don't do anything before the election. I don't anticipate we will on that. But, but, but in the end, I will tell you that I haven't really thought about uh, the court thing at all. Uh, I think it's more important to think about the impacts that this new justice is going to have on people's everyday lives. And and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be significant. I don't think it's, I personally don't think it's going to be for the uh, good for the working people of this country and the small businesses. Well, let's talk about some successes. There have been some really impressive ones on 
August 4th of 2020, the Great American Outdoors Act was signed into law. And there are uh, some who say it's the most significant environmental law passed in the last 50 years. Can you briefly share with our listeners what this act does? And thank you for your getting it passed. The Great American Outdoors Act basically goes in two different areas. The first area is our national parks. The infrastructure in our national parks needs attention. There's a significant investment, I believe $15 billion, but don't hold me to it. But I think that's what it was, $15 billion investment in our national parks. At any rate, very significant investment in our national parks and the infrastructure of our national parks. So our national parks is the first area. The second area is there's a program called the Land and Water Conservation Fund, LWCF. That fund was set up in the, in the mid-1960s. It was set up at $900 million per year to be taken off of oil and gas rental receipts. And it was to be used to help with access to our public lands. It was to be used to help expand our public lands. It was used to be able to fund uh, parks within cities and tennis courts and those kind of things. And this bill fully funds it at that level, that $900 million level. So why is that important? It's important because there are ecosystems in the West, and Montana may be the state that has the, the vast majority of them, that aren't going to be around in another 10 years. Uh, you know, developers will buy them. They will build houses on them. We'll be fighting forest fires around them. And quite frankly, it's not good for our ability to be able to go hunting and fishing and hiking and, and biking and those kind of things. And and this fund being fully funded will help uh, will help willing buyer, willing seller preserve some of those lands for future generations so our kids can have the same or even better opportunities to be able to go out and enjoy the great outdoors. So it was a big bill. It was, it was a great step forward. And, and I will tell you that uh, some of the people taking credit for it today were fighting against it just a few years ago. But for political reasons, they realized that they needed to switch sides. And I appreciate that. Well, that is one of your gifts, sir, is to be able to work across the aisle and get people to change their minds about things. Now, you recently appeared at the opening in Billings of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Cold Case Team Office. I'd like you to talk about that and also where the Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act are now. I would I would tell you that um, the missing and murdered Indigenous women issue is is uh, should be changed to missing and murdered Indigenous people. Although women are in, in Native America are, are 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 much more susceptible to it. I can tell you that when we brought this issue up for the Indian Affairs Committee a few years ago, there was a lot of resistance to even bring this up. And through the work Heidi Heitkamp did and and when she was in the Senate, and, she, and this, this actually happened after she left the Senate, but she did some amazing work with missing and murdered indigenous women. And I will tell you that it allowed me to, to really shame the committee, the chairman of the committee in particular, to take this issue up and have a hearing on it. And once that happened, it increased the awareness of this issue nationally. And there's been a lot of people including many, many, many Native Americans in Montana that have helped increase that awareness. In fact, uh, my guest here a few years ago at the State of the Union 
was a person who has fought hard to make this issue uh, a real so that so that uh, both the federal and state government uh, will do something about it and 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 I believe the state government did do something about it and that's good and and quite frankly we've got a problem out there and that problem needs to be solved and as I said earlier if you don't work on solving problems and they just continue to get worse and worse and worse. And I think we're seeing that with missing and murdered indigenous women. Now I know there was a report that came out recently that they're down a little bit, but, but keep this in mind, it all ebbs and flows. And, and even if one person goes missing and you can't find them and the, the case turns cold and then they forget about them, which happens far too often in our native American reservations, then that is a huge hit to that family and those people. And things will never be the same in that small community or with that family. So we need to pass those bills so we can uh, get additional law enforcement on the ground in Indian country so we can get better communication and move the ball forward on this issue. Because it's a, it's a real issue and it's an issue that Congress needs to act on to get it, to get it solved. I'm happy to report Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act were finally passed on September 21, 2020, by a voice vote in the House of Representatives, and they are now waiting on the president's desk for his signature. Senator Tester, you have been an incredible advocate for veterans throughout your career in the Senate, and I, I dare say it goes back to your time as a boy uh, playing the bugle at funerals for veterans. The president has recently been accused of calling people who served uh, losers. What what can you share with us about that situation? Well, I can tell you that just not anybody. This is the greatest generation, the folks that died uh, liberating Europe. In World War II, he called losers and suckers. And I can tell you that that he not only called those people who gave the ultimate sacrifice in Europe to free Europe from Nazi Germany of losers and suckers, he called everybody in this country a loser and sucker because of that. These are the people that helped make this country great. And look, I know he had a lot of bone spurs. He found a doctor that could tell the United States government that he got bone spurs so he didn't have to go to Vietnam. But to make those kind of statements at a cemetery, or when you're supposed to go to a cemetery that you didn't go to, is is absolutely unforgivable. I don't care if you're uh, who you are in this country. That is, That crosses the line in my book. I played taps for many of those World War folk, World War II folks through high school mainly. And I'm going to tell you what, the things that they did and what they saw, as with anybody who's been deployed to a war zone, was absolutely amazing. And the sacrifices that they made, the young men and women who were killed, that at a very, very young age, you never got to see life as I've been able to see it throughout my life. To call those folks suckers and losers is beyond my ability to understand. And uh, it just shows a total lack of, of, of understanding of the role our military plays in this country, of our freedoms that they fought for. Think of what this world would have been like if, if the American soldier hadn't done what they did 
1941 and went in there and, 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 and liberated Europe. Think what it would have been like with a dictator uh, like Adolf Hitler running concentration camps and, and people throughout this world. That's what it could have been. But the fact is, those folks fought and those folks were successful and they did it for the good of the world. And so I don't get it. I don't understand it, uh, but I do despise it. And in your background, which we haven't talked about yet, is the fact that you were a teacher. And when it came to the confirmation of Betsy DeVos, you pointed out that she was the only person who required the vice president to break the tie in the Senate in order to confirm her in history. But what I want to get to is the current situation with education stabilization funds because of coronavirus and uh, her not using the funds properly. What remarks can you share with our listeners about that? So this is a prime example of putting somebody in charge of an agency that they don't believe in. She doesn't believe in public education. She's never spent one day in a public school classroom. And quite frankly, so when you put people in those positions, they tend to to rip it apart. They want to voucherize it. They want to privatize it. They want to do everything they can. Now, keep in mind this. I told you about my grandmother and my mother. The fact of the matter is, is we would not have a democracy today if it wasn't for public education. So those people who want to voucherize it, and want to privatize it, that means you want to see the democracy go away because only a select few will be educated. But what's made this country great is the ability to bring people together in a classroom and be able to teach people how to get along. And now they want to screw that up. They want to divide. They want to divide this country into classes, worse than it's already being done right now. And Betsy DeVos is at the top of that list. And I will just tell you that Public education is incredibly important to me. I think it's one of the reasons my grandmother migrated from Sweden to this country, because of educational opportunity for her and her kids. And yet we have people who continue to rip it, try to rip it apart. I don't know what the long game is here, guys. I don't. If you're a patriot and you believe in democracy, why are you doing everything to rip apart the very foundation of that democracy? And that is what Betsy DeVos has done. So when it comes to distribute money, she doesn't want to distribute it fairly, equally, distribute it with common sense. She wants it to go to her agenda in her head. And her agenda in her head is to privatize public education, wipe it off the map. Make it so people that are missing three fingers on their left hand can't go to a private school. Because, by the way, people with disabilities often are barred from it because they make sure that's the case. Use whatever reason you want, but ultimately it's a disability that they don't want. And public education has never done that. Public education has educated everybody, regardless of color of the skin, regardless of how rich or poor you were. They've done the job. And and the best example I've got, my father was a homesteader. Cattlemen didn't like homesteaders. So when grandpa had his kids and the cattlemen had their kids, guess what? They all went to the same school. That was my mother's generation. And they all found out how to get along. And things work a lot better when you can find common ground. And that's what public education has done for us, too. So I don't have a lot of respect for Betsy DeVos. She's in a position she should not be in. She was put in that position to try to destroy public education, and she's doing her damnedest to do that. 
Well, Senator, we thank you so much for your generous sharing of your time with us. Any final remarks for our listeners? Well, I'll tell you if, you, if you have a chance and you want to buy the book or the audio version, I have read the audio, too, of it. Please do. I think it's a book that if you, if you read it, you'll understand that we as Americans have far more in common than we have differences. Uh, and in, in this divided day that we're in, and this country is very divided, just as Congress is very divided, I think it's an important message to get out there. So thank you very much, Joy. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. We now speak with Jake LaPeruque, Senior Counsel of the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO. POGO is a nonpartisan, independent watchdog that investigates and exposes waste, corruption, abuse of power, and when the government fails to serve the public or silences those who report wrongdoing. They published Jake LaPeruque's article, Injustice, Tracking Bill Barr's Misconduct as Attorney General, on September 25, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio, Jake LaPeruque. You wrote an article that was published by the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, on September 25, 2020, titled Injustice, Tracking Bill Barr's Misconduct as Attorney General. Now, September 25th, after the events since the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, seems like an eon ago. However, your points are really, really pertinent, and I fear they're getting subsumed under all the other things that have happened since it was published. You use the format of a timeline, and you point out that it was on Valentine's Day of 2019 that William Barr was confirmed for the second time, I might add, as the Attorney General of the United States by a 54 to 45 vote. Interestingly, to our listeners in Northern California, one of the very first actions that he took about two, three weeks after confirmation was to order antitrust investigations of the cannabis industry despite career officials' advice. Go into that briefly for our listeners. This example is, is something that did not come until much later, but really is part of a pattern of Attorney General Barr's conduct, which is essentially putting his own desires and motives towards the target of a prosecution, be they to give, give them a break or to go extra hard on them, based on that just on his personal whims rather than on precedent-based evidence, legal reasoning. And these are different factors we see problems with in a lot of different ways in the various investigations, whether this is most problematic. But essentially what happened in this case was you had a number of potential investigations of mergers within companies in the cannabis industry. Based on preliminary investigations, it seemed like those those mergers were not rising to the level of an antitrust violation, were not you know a sufficient merger that would take up a big share of the market. That's what prosecutors said when they looked at it. But what the antitrust division apparently told everyone was, well, you know, the attorney general doesn't like the industry. He wants this investigated, so we need to move ahead with an investigation. That led to not actually a prosecution, but it led to basically where they otherwise would have said, okay, we've looked at this and it seems fine. A lot of significant additional investigations and activity until they eventually, with a lot more evidence and a lot more work, reached the same conclusion. This was something that was not actually part of the investigation, but the antitrust division had themselves acknowledged 
apparently to staff, it was being done essentially for political reasons because it was an industry that Bill Barr did not like. Yes, it's it's starkly in contrast of the lack of antitrust investigations where the public is crying out for them. You organized the article focusing on four different things, undermining the special counsel, prioritizing politics over justice, which you just mentioned, interfering with impartial prosecutions, and hindering congressional oversight. Soon after his becoming the attorney general in April, the Mueller report, you charge him with mischaracterizing the Mueller report's findings. Now, as I mentioned, this does seem like ancient history now, but this is this story is ongoing. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, and well, I think it's very important you say that this is ongoing because this is not, you know, an issue that's really... You know, that happened last year and lost importance and been dropped. I mean, this is something that the president, the attorney general and other political allies will continuously refer to as oh, this is the Russian hoax and there was clearly no collusion. The story is actually a lot different and a lot more complicated, both in terms of Russian contacts and interactions and especially the obstruction of justice charges. Attorney General Barr found not to be there, but that a lot of independent observers have said, well, all the elements of an obstruction charge are actually there on a number of points. What happened with the Mueller report, though, as we look back, is that we saw, you know, the attorney general received the report, reviewed it very quickly, made this determination that there was no obstruction, which he said in his letter, and then issued a summary letter that took a significant number of Mueller's quotes, parts of the report and items out of context, twisted the words in ways that really helped him kind of put his finger on the scale, saying, oh, this report finds everything's pretty much fine. That's very much not the case. In fact, we now know not only was he making a letter that took things out of context, but Mueller, as soon as he issued that letter, privately reached out to Barr and said, hey, this is, this is not appropriate. This is not what I'm saying. You're confusing the public about the report and its findings. We wrote an executive summary that we wanted to release for the report. It's completely unclassified. There's no reason you couldn't release it right now. And if we want people to understand this report before it's released and get a kind of general sense and summary of what we found, I really want you to release that summary that my office wrote. So not only was Mueller himself directly saying this summary is confusing people, this summary is misleading people, he gave Barr a direct remedy to say, here's what you should do to give people clarity on what the report says. Here's how you should clarify the public record. And for no real reason, Barr simply refused or ignored to do that. Well, it's even worse than that. Not only did Attorney General Barr refuse to release it to the public, he refused to give it to Congress to review the full Mueller report. And that's April 19th, 2019. May 1st, 2019, you write that Barr makes false statements to the Senate about the Mueller investigation. And we can go on, but October 25th, 2019, Federal District Court Rules Justice Department must give Congress full Mueller report. They appeal that March 5th, 2020, D.C. Federal Court ruling criticizes Barr's summary of Mueller report as misleading. March 10th, 2020, Appeals Court rules Justice Department must give Congress full Mueller report. And then May 20th, 2020, Supreme Court pauses order to provide full Mueller report to Congress. Your comments on that, please, Jake. Again, this is kind of worth 
pointed out, as far as the Mueller report, that I think you know a lot of it's been lost in the public and lost in the spin, you know, about like collusion or no collusion. That there is still a lot of there there in the Mueller report. You know, a lot of the most incriminating and problematic elements of it were things that were also found, if not described in more harsh level, by the bipartisan Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee report that recently came out. And then there are elements of the Mueller report that we still don't know. We still don't have access to grammar materials and other information that Congress has essentially been in an almost 18-month legal battle with the Justice Department just to get access to those materials. And that's one that's still ongoing. So, I mean, not only is this an item of significance where there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors cast up about what was actually said in the report, but we're still actually even trying to get to the bottom fully of what was in it. Unfortunately, just kind of given everything going on, I think, you know, a lot of the attention towards that has passed, but I think it is worth highlighting that this is something where, you know, in large part because of the Attorney General and DOJ's efforts, we never really got the full story on it in the way we should have. We are recording this on October 5th, 2020, which is the first day of the new session of the Supreme Court of the United States. But that May 20th, 2020 ruling by the Supreme Court means that even if the Supreme Court eventually agrees with the district court and the appeals court that the Justice Department must provide Congress with the full report, it is possible that this session of Congress will end before lawmakers finally have access to it. So, well, let's move on. Many of the things that Attorney General Barr has done has resulted in the resignation of career Justice Department attorneys. And I wanted you to talk about that and also the position that they're in. Do, do they stay there and try to influence things towards the public good, or do they resign rather than be required to go against their constitutional oath? Would you talk about that, please? That's quite a dilemma. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we see this in two ways. I mean, the higher level is with the kind of the U.S. attorneys who are formal appointed positions to run the various Justice Department offices across the country. And then we have issues of the, the line attorneys and prosecutors are kind of tailing more of the day-to-day work of cases and investigations. So in the former U.S. attorneys, we've seen a couple of notable instances in these jurisdictions in D.C. and in New York that are handling a lot of politically sensitive cases where Barr and the president have tried to use kind of jobs to entice those individuals out of office to replace them. So first, we saw an instance where Jesse Liu, who was the U.S. attorney in D.C., she resigned that position while she was overseeing things like many of the prosecutions stemming from the Mueller investigation to take a top-level job at Treasury. So she does that, and then actually, essentially right around the exact same time as the Stone sentence is upended by, you know, a, a loyalist who Bill Barr replaces, her nomination to this treasury job is pulled. So essentially, she's lured out of work by that offer of, oh, you'll take a top job in the treasury department as soon as she leaves and someone who's a little more loyal to Bill Barr and his agenda can replace her, that nomination, that enticed her to leave is pulled out from under her. Potentially, the same thing was going to happen to Jeffrey Berman, who was the U.S. attorney in New York. He was offered a top position at the Security and Exchange Commission saying, hey, we would like you to leave. We'd like to replace someone. We'd like this person to come in and take this job for you. Would you like this job? He said no. But it was kind of the, the exact same pattern of, well, we want a loyalist in this job. There's already someone there. Rather than go through the kind of the political drama 
an intention of firing them. Let's see if we can just offer them a job and get them to quietly walk away so we can put some in their place. Now, in Berman's case, that didn't really work out because he said no, and it led to a very, very loud and much watched scene where he was fired. And that probably is the reason why his deputy, rather than the political loyalist, got placed there because there was so much attention drawn to it. We've seen that kind of having these offices more loyal to bar his agenda has been a significant goal of his. Now, the second issue is these line prosecutors, you know, who have been faced with some really, really tough decisions where they're asked to conduct work that seems unethical. Both, I think, probably most notably in the cases involving Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, where in the former, um, he was sentenced, DOJ put forward a sentence recommendation that was well within its guidelines, made sense. The judge said that that sentence sentencing recommendation made sense. Even if she wanted a shorter term overall, she thought the recommendation was proper conduct. But then there was from the higher levels an effort to say, no, actually, we're going to drop that to be much, much lower because we don't want to put a harsh sentence on this guy. And in Flynn's case, you know, obviously it was even more extreme. They dropped a prosecution against someone who had already pled guilty on multiple occasions. I mean, I think it's hard in these situations as far as what they should do to say whether there's a specific right or wrong path or a specific line that you have to draw. But I think the general principle for these officers is that they are looking at situations and saying, well, you know, even if I think there's problems going on, can I be in a role where I can prevent harm, where I can do good, where I can keep an eye out for problems in my role? Or is my ability to prevent impropriety so limited that I'm better off simply resigning and using that resignation to sound an alarm? Yeah, I think that's just simply a very personal choice to make, but hopefully one that officials are taking very seriously all the time as far as the risks going on. Something else I think worth noting, though, is there is a role for individuals who don't want to leave. They can still blow the whistle on misconduct they see, either privately or by coming forward publicly. And there are laws designed to prevent retaliation. You can't fire someone for going to Congress and reporting that they saw misconduct happening. And in fact, the individual who we mentioned previously that blew the whistle on these politically motivated prosecutions of the cannabis industry, he is still a DOJ employee, um, you know, despite the fact that he, you know, essentially was calling on Congress to say, hey, my boss engaged in improper conduct, the attorney general, you should investigate him for this. And because there, there are laws designed to say that if government officials want to blow the whistle, they have the right to do that. Yeah, we've seen how well that's worked out for some, though. Anyway, right. <laughs> Jake LaPeruc, on October 1st, 2020, 1,600 former Justice Department lawyers signed a letter accusing Attorney General Barr of using Department of Justice to help Trump in election. Are you familiar with that letter, and what can you tell us about it if you are? Yeah, this is not the first time we've seen a huge number of lawyers and Justice Department officials speaking out publicly with heavy concern about Barr. But this one is especially directed at the way that he's tried to sort of frame investigations around the election. But I think it is especially focused on the upcoming Durham investigation. Now, this goes to a kind of recurring theme we've seen from Barr, which is that he really has leaned into this kind of conspiracy theory about spying on the Trump campaign, which has not only never been borne out, but has actually been pretty thoroughly debunked through the Justice Department Inspector General's investigations and, of course, just all the work done in the Mueller report and done through the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the Russia investigation. But he continues to kind of lob these accusations that the Trump campaign was spied on, that there was improper political spying, and just feed this conspiracy theory. There's a lot of concern that he's trying to use this Durham investigation, which was created to look into the concept of political spying and that regardless of where the facts may lead on that, that Barr is going to try to turn that into essentially a political weapon 
to either get a report or an interim report from it that he can hold up to say, uh, look at these awful things that happened to Trump and to you know, validate these long-running, long-debunked conspiracies and also to cast doubt on some of the previous quite legitimate investigations, such as those into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, we've already seen a high-ranking individual on Durham's team resign. I was concerned that allegedly Barr has said that he wants to, even if the investigation is not finished, release an interim report about the investigation. That would be virtually unprecedented for a criminal investigation, and there there really is no reason to do it other than to try to reap political gain from it. So that would be deeply unpopular. And then even the investigation itself, there's been a lot of analysis on this. is something we're familiar from 2016. You are not supposed to take investigative actions on the even election that could influence its outcome. It's been a long-running DOJ policy to kind of put a hold on investigative actions that might influence the outcome of an election. Barr seems to be pretty blatantly flouting those rules. Yeah, that's the 60-day rule. When William Barr was George H.W. Bush's attorney general, he actually spoke about the importance of that rule, even as he appears to be violating it now, prematurely talking about alleged ballot tampering in Pennsylvania and things like that. We are out of time, Jake Labaruk. Could you please just give our listeners some final words about your research and anything else you want them to know? These issues, you know, unfortunately are not only very serious, but they do seem to be escalating. Barr's conduct seems to be getting more brazen as time goes on, as far as things like trying to politicize investigations, having very pretextual reasons for throwing the book at some individuals or letting the president's friends and political allies off light. And then these are very much worries that, you know, are ongoing. So I think it's worth looking at these items, not only as far as keeping track of his misconduct, but also keeping ready for what he might do next and read the whole timeline and a lot of our other work on the Justice Department at, at pogo.org. Well, Jake LaPeruc, thank you very much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Right, thank you. Our guest today on the first segment of Forthright Radio was senior senator from Montana, John Tester. His memoir, Grounded, A Senator's Lessons on Winning Back Rural America, is published by ECHO. We were just now speaking with Senior Counsel of the Constitution Project at POGO, Jake LaPeruc, about his study, Injustice, Tracking Bill Barr's Misconduct as Attorney General. You can find out more at pogo.org. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production. I'm Joy LaClaire. And you can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. A fortnight from today, on October 21st, we speak with nonagenarian author, psychiatrist, psychohistorian Robert J. Lifton. We'll discuss his seven decades of work and his latest book, Losing Reality, on cults, cultism, and the mindset of political and religious zealotry. Meanwhile, our community radio station has been here for us for more than three decades now, through thick and thin, fires, floods, plagues, wars, whatever comes our way, providing us with entertainment, political analysis, intellectual engagement, artistic inspiration, life and death survival information. 
Now it's time for each of us during this silent pledge drive to come together and rally our resources beyond just listening. When we all give, even a little, we all get a lot. And it's easier than you may think. Just go to kzyx.org and click on the red donate button at the top of the page. We do thank you for your support. This is Joy LaClaire signing out for now.